Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You know it's a bad idea, but it is tempting to log on to the internet to look up information on ailments and other health conditions. Now, Alexa is making that a whole lot easier. But should you trust the information she gives you? Coming up, we'll hear more from Quartz reporter Catherine Foley. Now, have you been to a baseball game lately, specifically a Yard Goats game in downtown Hartford? The ballpark has brought thousands of people to the area since it opened, but not much else has been developed in the area known as downtown north. That may change according to the latest from the Hartford Current. Business reporter Kenneth Gosling will update us on a new developer who's taking a shot at redeveloping the area. Now, what will it mean for Hartford residents? We'll find out just ahead. But first, this week, the State Bond Commission is expected to vote on Governor Malloy's plan to study tolls. The cost is a whopping $10 million. Connecticut Post reporter Bill Cummings will explain why it's coming before the Bond Commission versus a vote by Connecticut's General Assembly. That's in a few minutes. Now, our neighbor Rhode Island recently announced its new toll program made more than half a million dollars in one month. Some lawmakers, like Democratic gubernatorial candidate Ned Lamont, told us on Where We Live that he'd like to see something similar here in Connecticut. But Rhode Island's program is not without controversy. For more, joining us from the studios at Rhode Island Public Radio is Scott McKay. He's political analyst for Rhode Island Public Radio. Scott, welcome to the show. Good morning. Now, uh, I understand you were stuck in traffic this morning, but we're, ha- we're happy to hear your voice, Scott. Yeah, it's been, uh, we call it only two seasons in Rhode Island, winter and construction. <laughs> that sounds similar to Connecticut. So so tell us, we, we wanted to compare what's happening uh, and what has happened in Rhode Island to this continuing debate here in Connecticut about tolls. Uh, let's hear a little bit about the, the backdrop of terms of before this toll program began, what were some of the discussions in Rhode Island about uh, whether this is a good idea or not. Well, there was a lot of discussion about it, and we had some even political psychodrama over it. Uh, At one point, the State Department of Transportation closed a bridge that was faltering near the office of the House Speaker in the House of Representatives, a guy named Nick Mattiello, near his law firm, and he wasn't too happy about that. But we had a long and protracted debate over two or three sessions assembly sessions about this, and what it came down to was uh, kind of some of it was a philosophical argument, and some of it was the usual kind of special interest sturm and drang that we see in front of legislatures. Obviously, the trucking industry thought that they were being uh, picked on, and they don't think it's fair. They're going to file a suit, they say, probably based on the fact that, you know, interstate commerce that states can't by themselves go in and and work against this. And so that's pending. But the big fight was uh, over whether or not uh, this was just a stalking horse for tolling cars. And they got a lot of people upset about that because Rhode Island, except for a couple of places, the Newport Bridge is the most prominent, really doesn't have a history of tolling uh, cars. We know some other states, Massachusetts and the Mass Turnpike and uh, New Hampshire tolls. Maine does tolls. Connecticut did them, of course, until you had that horrible car accident 
uh, many years ago, uh, in the 1980s, I believe. And so it was kind of a new thing in Rhode Island, and people were very upset. The Republicans uh, made a big deal out of it because they're the minority party in the legislature, and they thought this would be a good issue for them, uh, getting people riled up about the fact that the Democrats were going to impose car tolls, and the truck tolls were just the first you know, the first stanza in this long song. Now, I believe that that lawsuit has been filed, Scott. And so what what is the trucking industry um, alleging uh, where they're saying they're being treated unfairly? But does it have to also do with uh, the Commerce Clause and, and yes, whether what, what how they're legally able, how Rhode Island's legally able to only toll tractor trailers? Can you describe that for us? Well, they're, they're upset because they believe that uh, states shouldn't be able to erect these barriers state by state. I think that the trucking industry, as a lot of industries, they want to have predictable regulation, and that's what they're upset with, that one state is carving out something. Now, the reverse of that, of course, is the state claims, and it, it makes sense that trucks, these huge trucks, cause a lot more damage to the roads than the average passenger vehicle. Of course, they're much heavier. And the state also argues that they have to uh, build bridges to stronger, sturdier standards because of the heavy loads that these trucks uh, bring. So they're saying that the trucks, basically this is a user fee, they're saying. And other states do this. I mean, to cross the George Washington Bridge, if you're a tractor trailer, you pay a toll of about $150. Now, you had mentioned that uh, residents and some politicians are worried that uh, this is a start of tolling all vehicles, uh, uh, not just tractor trailers. But for that to happen, there would have to be another bill approved by the the legislature. Yeah, that was the compromise they worked out, that when they tolled the trucks, when they passed that legislation, they specifically put in there that cars were exempt and this, there would be no way to expand this uh, bill to cars without yet another vote of the legislature. And the speaker, the gentleman we referred to earlier, mm-hmm. has vowed that he will not bring up any legislation as long as he's speaker that would extend the truck tolls to automobiles. This is where we live. Joining us from Rhode Island Public Radio is Scott McKay. He's a political analyst for Rhode Island Public Radio. We're talking about Rhode Island's new tolling program. I believe it's called Road Works, and it's uh, only tolling tractor trailers. Uh, we, we know here in Connecticut for the last several sessions there has been uh, discussion about uh, the, um, whether the legislature should approve tolls. And here in Connecticut, uh, the, the voters passed a constitutional lockbox so that money would go towards transportation projects. But in Rhode Island, is there any specific uh, um, uh, a vehicle for, uh, so to speak, for this money to be used to fix the roads? Or can it also go into Rhode Island's general fund? Well, no. The, the bill is, as passed, is supposed to put that money just into the roads, and it's part of a 10-year plan. However, we all know that when recessions come along, funny things happen at state houses. And in Rhode Island, we call it the scoop. They will sometimes scoop this money uh, to try to balance the budget. They don't want to raise taxes in a recession. That's what happened the last uh, recession. And so one legislature, as probably is the case in Connecticut also, I grew up in Connecticut, so I understand how things work a little bit there. In fact, I graduated from Lewis Mills High School over in Burlington. But So what's, what happens is, is that one legislature can't bind another one. 
So in other words, uh, if the legislature came along, there's a big recession next year, they could perhaps scoop some of this money. Uh, Again, it's subject to a lawsuit, but uh, in other years, they've taken gas tax money. They looked at all the ways of financing this, and one thing is uh, the gas tax. Uh, You know, and the problem with the gas tax is, is that you probably drive a car that gets 30 miles a gallon, and 15 years ago, you drove a car that got 15 miles a gallon. And with the coming of electric cars, fuel taxes are not as good a revenue stream as they once were. And so that was one of the problems here that they discussed. But no, uh, a legislature could in future years take this money and put it somewhere else. But again, with the lawsuit on its way, I, I don't know what how that will resolve itself, if you know what I mean. Uh, to get some uh, Connecticut perspective on, again, this uh, continuing discussion on uh, whether Connecticut should toll, uh, joining us by phone now is Bill Cummings. He's staff writer for Hearst Connecticut Media. You can read uh, his stories at ctpost.com. Bill, welcome to our show. Yes, thank you. So uh, we've heard uh, that Rhode Island made uh, more than $600,000 in this first month of tolling tractor trailers. How are uh, politicians and others reacting here in Connecticut uh, to Rhode Island's uh, program and whether uh, Connecticut should move forward with something similar? Well, Connecticut has not talked. The legislature has not talked specifically about just tolling trucks. They want to toll everything. Uh, on all the highways and state routes that are four-lane high, uh, roads. Um, one Democratic candidate for governor has proposed a similar program to Rhode Island. Yeah, Ned Lamont, so, right? <laughs> Ned Lamont, correct. So that's been the bulk of the discussion on just truck tolling. Otherwise, it's been about three years of back and forth on whether or not we want to do you know, full tolling. Uh, now, when um, I know it's only been a month since Rhode Island's been tolling tractor trailers, but uh, we heard from the trucking industry, uh, especially on eastern Connecticut, that they were worried that truckers were going to try to avoid Rhode Island. That would cause more traffic in eastern Connecticut. Uh, do we know if that has been an impact at all? I have not heard that. I have not even seen anything written about that as of now. But. Uh, Rhode Island is very early into mm-hmm. its tolling, so that may very well be a problem. And remind us again, uh, Bill, because we have talked about tolls uh, several uh, times on the show. We had Ned Lamont on uh, a couple of weeks ago where he did talk about uh, doing something similar, uh, you know, uh, only tolling tractor trailers. But why is the Connecticut public and politicians so divided on this when we look at all the states, especially in the Northeast, that where we pay tolls, but in Connecticut, they're able to just keep on going through and not pay anything. Uh, in a word, it's taxes. Uh, it's often cast as just another tax in an already overtaxed state. Uh, Republicans have been playing this very hard and, and perhaps successfully. Uh, it's difficult to make the argument to people that are commuting or uh, driving into New York or wherever they happen to, to go to work um, that, you know, another buck or two or three dollars here or four dollars there uh, is a good thing for the state and for you. And if uh, Connecticut were to pass tolls, that would o- the, the money would only go towards transportation projects? Is that how it would work? It depends on how they write the legislation. But uh, we do have a lockbox, as so-called, where um, gas tax revenue and uh, so on is supposed to go into a special transportation fund. The problem is over the years, some of that money has been diverted when they have deficits and uh, budget problems. Often the money is then put back in a, in a, in a subsequent year. Now, interestingly, um, on the ballot in November is a, a ballot question where voters can say they want a lockbox and make it a constitutional provision where 
any money from tolling or uh, gas tax would have to go directly into the special transportation fund. So it would provide somewhat of a guarantee. Um, <clears throat> it often um, opponents say, well, it's not that tight a lockbox, and, and the key is readily available. Mm. <laughs> That's exactly what we were talking with Scott McKay, who's political analyst at Rhode Island uh, Public Radio, about uh, where this money will go uh, if uh, uh, with tolls and not just looking at our uh, really failing roads and bridges. Uh, there's also another uh, local uh, recent peg to this story, uh, Bill Cummings, again, staff writer for Hearst, Connecticut Media, uh, where we're hearing Governor Malloy uh, is ordering a $10 million study on tolls, and that's going to go before the State Bond Commission. Why yeah. there? Well, this is an old-fashioned end-around. Um, basically, the legislature had a bill that would have done essentially the same thing this session. Um, it went through various committees. Um, there was support. But at the, at, at the last minute, it never was put before the full House and Senate. Now, the Senate is 1818 Republican, with a lieutenant governor who's a Democrat able to break a tie. Uh, but they didn't, I think leadership didn't think they could get it through the Senate, so why put it before the House? where it could have failed as well, but more likely would have passed, uh, given that it's an election year. So the bottom line is the legislature took no action. So the governor decided to do it on his own. And the bond commission is run uh, by the governor. And um, he has a good chance of getting his way. Mm. Now, uh, I thought I had uh, read a couple of years ago the Connecticut Department of Transportation has been studying tolling on roads. Why is this particular study needed, and why such a big cost, Bill? Do we know? Uh, because those earlier studies, there's been two or three at least in the last three or four or five years, um, they were more generic. They weren't specific to what actually would the toll be. Uh, what would be told? How much revenue could be made? It was more of a discussion of congestion tolling versus outright tolling and uh, express lanes and so on. Um, this would be much more specific and um, would be usable for implementation. We're getting a lot of uh, social media comments. Uh, Janice writing on Facebook, we should. Connecticut should have tolls since we're a through state. Jackie writes, truck tolls, absolutely. Tolls for Connecticut residents, no. And Laura says, just remember all the tolls collected will cost you when purchasing things. I, I want to go back to uh, Scott McKay, political analyst at Rhode Island uh, Public Radio. Uh, with Laura's point, uh, with uh, the trucking industry having to only pay uh, tolls in Rhode Island uh, for the time being, is that something where uh, they're worried about costs going back to the consumer in different ways. Well, they brought that up. And there was a lot of talk also in the legislature during the early uh, formation of this legislation that it would hurt economic development, that it would give the state a bad name, that it would raise prices of all those goods that trucks bring in. But, you know, you look around in New England, you look at states you go out to Tanglewood uh, for the weekend and you try to drive back on your way to Hartford on the Mass Pike, boy, those tolls don't seem to stop anybody from going there. And the same with the beaches in Maine or New Hampshire. When you look at the summer there, it doesn't seem that tolls stop anybody taking the Mass Pike in the famous uh, words of James Taylor all the way from Stockbridge to Boston. Uh, when we, uh, when you look over to uh, your home state, uh, Scott, uh, and seeing how this discussion continues uh, in Connecticut, what are some lessons that uh, Connecticut can learn from Rhode Island? Are there any? Yeah, I think the one thing you can learn is that you need early on to strike a good compromise between the revenue and how much you hit the truckers on. The earlier legislation that was passed by the Senate 
but not by the House here, uh, basically put higher tolls on them, and then the House whittled that down to something else. It's still supposed to bring in $450 million over 10 years, which is about, you know, 10% or so of this $5 billion road and bridge program that Rhode Island's on. The other thing is when you talk about the lockbox, I understand what people feel. Mm -hmm. A lot of voters feel that they would have been burned over the years because every time there's a recession, the deficits get, you know, the river of red ink runs through the state budget. They look for little ways to patch it up, and they use that money, taking it from uh, the road funds, funds that are supposed to be dedicated to roads, whether it's the gas tax or in Rhode Island, uh, DMV, you know, the registration uh, fees that you pay on your cars. That was all supposed to be going towards the roads. And over the years, people got a little uh, skeptical or even cynical because, as Bill was pointing out, when you get a deficit, when you get a recession, legislators don't want to raise taxes. They look at the revenue streams they have, and they use what they have to patch other places in the budget. And we and here in Connecticut, we don't have much to work with in terms of our billion-dollar deficits uh, uh, in the out years. I want to thank Scott McKay, political analyst at Rhode Island Public Radio. Also joining us uh, by phone was Bill Cummings, staff writer for Hearst Connecticut Media. You can read his work at ctpost.com. Scott and Bill, thanks for joining us. Great Thank to be you. here. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, Hartford's long, vacant downtown north neighborhood got a boost when the Dunkin' Donuts ballpark opened last year. What's the latest to turn around several vacant lots around the stadium? The Hartford Current's Ken Gosselin will update us after the break. Now, do you live in Hartford? What do you want to see city officials do to approve and what projects to approve in downtown north or north Hartford? We want to hear from you, too. Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. As always, find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. A few bumps for redeveloping an area in Hartford's downtown north neighborhood. Now, a new developer has proposed a $200 million project that would include apartments, retail, and yes, parking garages. Hartford City Council still has to approve the project. Now, if you're a council member listening to our conversation, we want to hear your thoughts on the proposal. Join us at 860 275 7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And if you're a city resident, what do you want to see in this area to connect it with North Hartford? We want to hear from you too, 860-275-7266. Now for more on this uh, development proposal, joining us in studio is Ken Gosselin, business reporter for the Hartford Current. Ken, welcome back. Thanks, Lucy. And today we're not talking casinos. No, no, we're talking development. <laughs> so tell us, uh, for listeners outside Hartford who don't know this uh, this uh, downtown north, as it's called, this part of Hartford, where there has been a lot of vacant lots, we do have this uh, beautiful ballpark now, which was without had its own controversy, but before we get to that, I'm curious if you can give us a little backstory and why this area has sat idle for so long. Okay, so with it, just to orientate everyone, um, the this is the area, as Lucy just said, around the ballpark, and for decades, really, it was uh, very much vacant. And that was created because when I-84 came through in the 1960s, it really split, uh, not only physically but psychologically, from downtown. So you had this area just north of downtown, but because of the highway, it felt very far away from downtown. 
And then over the years, there were you know many ideas what to do up there. I mean, in the, when Steve Wynn, the casino mogul, came through in the 1990s, there was thought of a casino up there. Um, when the Patriots came down and were possibly going to build a, a stadium down here, that was a site that they were uh, potentially looking at. So over the course of time, there had been a lot of talk up there, but there, not much had happened. Uh, now, again, the ballpark opened last year. I think mm-hmm. it was supposed to open the year previous. That's and correct. that is related to what happened with the the latest uh, proposal uh, that came out of a company, uh, Central Plan, is also Dono North mm-hmm. LLC. Uh, tell us about uh, what they were proposing for this area and why it failed. Okay, so they, uh, you know, the uh, uh, we had a 16-acre uh, area here, and uh, the ballpark was the first phase of it. So the city hired center plan and it was called Dono LLC and uh, to construct the whole project okay so they got underway in 2015 on the ballpark first phase and uh, they ran into a lot of problems okay they missed construction deadlines uh, the ballpark would not be ready for the first season so the city fired them from that uh, from that project and hired someone else, as we know, to finish the ballpark that opened last year, as you uh, as you pointed out. Late last year, uh, the city also then fired center plan construction from the rest of the project. And they had also, the vision there also was a mixed-use apartments. They had talked about a hotel, grocery store. Uh, so once they were fired, um, then the thought was, okay, we have to try to look for someone else. Of course, there's the wrinkle here in that there's still a legal challenge from Center Plan Construction and Dono um, as to uh, what their interest still is in this area. So um, the city, though, decided to go forward on this and uh, seek bids. We've mentioned uh, uh, the ballpark a couple of times, but the reason, uh, besides having uh, a very bustling downtown, the city of Hartford needs development down there to pay for this ballpark. That's it, exactly. There, it was a, The cost of the ballpark, of course, went w- much higher than was initially expected. So the thought was, okay, we're going to do the ballpark, but then the rest of the development around the ballpark would help generate property tax revenue and such to to kind of justify uh, the investment in the ballpark there. Um, So that's kind of now what they're hoping will happen. In studio with me is uh, Ken Gosselin, business reporter for the Hartford Current. We're getting an update on this. uh, There's a new proposal. We're going to hear about that in just a few seconds uh, to uh, revitalize, redevelop areas that have sat vacant uh, near uh, the Dunkin' Donuts uh, ballpark downtown. If you live in the city of Hartford, we want to hear from you. What do you want to see down in uh, that area that will connect it to North Hartford that could actually benefit uh, city residents? Uh, You can join the conversation, 860-275. 7266. So now that we've got a little of the backstory, let's talk about this new developer who's uh, come into the picture. He's got a proposal. I understand he was the only bit. Yes, he was the only one that that came in. Um, so, <clears throat> and I think that the city maybe was a little disappointed by that, that they would have liked to have at least a couple to uh, choose from. But um, he was a known entity to them because he had just completed the uh, renovation of and reopening of the Goodwin Hotel down on Asylum Street. And um, so they knew of him. They saw what he did there. Say his name again. Uh, Randy Salvatore, RMS Companies from Stanford. And uh, so, you know, they, they knew of him. 
Okay, and he does have a track record as well uh, that they could look at. Um, Stanford, he's done a lot of projects. He's now actually in the middle of just starting a very large project in New Haven, uh, a similar type project as Downtown North because there were a lot of dis- disparate parcels that kind of put together and doing another mixed use connecting the area from the Yale Medical School to downtown. So it's kind of a similar idea of connecting as downtown north, connecting downtown to the north neighborhoods. So what is he proposing exactly with this $200 million project? Okay, so he is looking at uh, 800 apartments, okay, which would be phased in over time because, of course, you couldn't drop them all on the market at one time. So he'd go little by little, parcel by parcel up there. Uh, starting closest right now, he thinks, to where the Red Lion, the former Radisson Hotel, is, start in that area right there. And he's also talking uh, possibly of a grocery store and, you know, storefront retail, but not retail like shopping, um, more retail like restaurant, um, bars, galleries, maybe live entertainment, that type of retail. Is that, you've been doing this for a long time, is that what that area needs? Uh, yes, uh, it it needs some vibrancy, obviously, up there. Um, and what we found with the downtown area is that shops they do struggle. You know, stores uh, where you know traditional clothing stores and such. We do have some. We're happy to have the ones that we have in Hartford, but it, that is a very difficult thing to make go in the downtown, at least right now. And uh, so the city is supportive of this idea of, you know, restaurant entertainment more up there. You mentioned it's it's hard for stores. Uh, we know that there's been a long time a food desert in that part of Hartford. Is that why it's difficult to get a grocery store in that area? And is that something that Randy Salvatore wants to see? Yes. Well, he definitely would like to see. And yes, there is a food desert there. Uh, we have a small market, the Greenway Market, down on Asylum, which is doing f- fairly well. Um, but the idea is to have have a you know more a bigger place more full service because I think that if you live downtown you can shop at the local market there um, but you still once in a while have to do the big shop quote unquote and have to go out to the suburbs to do that and um, I think one of the problems with the grocery store though has been there are not enough people living there and now with the addition of more apartments there are more people. He would add more apartments. There'd be more people to shop there to actually support it. Mm. You mentioned apartments. Uh, when it comes to affordable housing, that's a big issue here in mm. Connecticut. Would there be affordable units uh, for uh, Hartford residents? And are there concerns about gentrification? Yes, there, there certainly is. Right now, uh, Mr. Salvatore is talking about um, market rate apartments there. Mm. In our discussions, uh, my colleague Jenna Carlesso and I have been working on this story together. We have uh, talked to him about that, and he said he is open to the idea of, quote-unquote, affordable housing, okay? Um, There may be – you would need more public money coming in to be able to do that. Right now, he's really looking at a lot of private financing. Um, which is a good a good sign uh, that he wants to bring in a lot of private money, uh, some of his own equity, uh, would maybe need some financing from the Capital Region Development Authority for the apartments. But if you're going to take that other next step to affordable housing, there may be more that would be needed on top of what he's already talking about. 
Again, Ken Gossens in studio with us, business reporter for the Hartford Current, and talking about a proposal before uh, the Hartford City Council in a few weeks, I believe, uh, began to uh, redevelop uh, parts and uh, parts of four uh, vacant parcels, I should say, near Dunkin' Donuts Ballpark. You can join our conversation eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to go back uh, when we I asked you about how this uh, Randy Salvatore's bid was the only bid. This whole uh, debacle surrounding what happened between the city of Hartford and Center Plan and Dono LLC. Did that hurt uh, the city of Hartford in terms of how developers and other companies are seeing uh, whether they can work with the city on a big project, million, multi-million dollar project? You know, I think that would, could could have been in the background there, definitely. Uh, the, the thought that, you know, there were all these problems and then the, the selection process and such. But what Mr. Salvatore said, and we asked him about that, he said that he's a fresh eye on this, and he really does feel that, you know, being from outside, from being from Stamford, you know, starting to get to know the, uh, the, the city of Hartford, that he sees a lot of opportunity here where others might not have seen it. So, And Stamford really has a lot going on, but they, they are very close to New York City. Yes, they are. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, joining the conversation now, uh, Larry from Hartford, I believe, Larry Deutsch, a member of city council. Larry, welcome to the show. Yes, good morning, and thanks once again. So uh, give us uh, your take on uh, this proposal that will be before you and your colleagues uh, to redevelop uh, that part of downtown Hartford. Uh, Is this something that the city needs? Of course it needs it. Uh, On the other hand, we emphasize, especially those of us in the minority, uh, uh, which happens to be working families, but all of us feel it's important to have a look at the details and in particular to make sure that those who live and work in it are fairly treated, and I mean by that, uh, uh, those who work in it should um, have a living wage, what we call, which is well above the minimum wage. It's been a big issue, and in the baseball park, for instance, uh, you ask anyone who is uh, serving you a hamburger or a beer if he or she gets what we call a living wage, uh, which is above minimum wage, and you'll find the answer is likely no. And likewise, there should be a, a project labor agreement so that construction workers are, are guaranteed a fair treatment and prompt payment for subcontractors and so on. These have been stumbling blocks, and, and we need in city council to see the details as to what is not only offered but guaranteed and enforced, unlike some other projects in the city that have uh, either fallen through or not have had proper um, observance for those who live and work in the areas and not just the commerce that is developed. Uh, you had mentioned some of the, the other projects that have failed. We were talking about uh, what happened with Center Plan and Dono LLC. I believe there were issues with Dillon Stadium. Um, as a, a council member, I mean, what are you looking for in terms of making sure that the developer is going to follow through with what they're promising and taking into account what uh, city officials and city residents want to see? Well, we need adequate enforcement, of course, and that, that includes a vigorous procurement office which has been criticized in the past to make sure minority contractors are fairly treated. Sometimes there's uh, too much, uh, too higher levels for bonding of minority and small contractors. Sometimes their payment is delayed, such that a state law was needed recently to ensure prompt payment of smaller uh, minority and women contractors. And once again, ultimately, if it is a good mixed-use development, we would want and insist that those who work there, no matter what the job, be at least given a living wage and encouraged, of course, to have hired residents, um, uh, Hartford residents hired. So, indeed, there's a walk to work uh, 
uh, uh, feature to it and not and not have the managers and owners uh, from out of town who may pay substandard wages. Uh, one more question for you, Councilman. Uh, you have talked about the importance of a living wage, uh, making sure there are minority contractors. But if this uh, development goes through, um, how would that impact uh, rising property values? Are you concerned about affordability for people who live down in that area? Yes, of course. That's a fine question. And, and, and we fervently hope that there would be affordability within any housing that's developed there so that it not be uh, uh, what's called... Um, uh, a um, gentrified section of town, which, as you know, is a risk in any city. Uh, uh, you know, in New York, many people have to leave uh, Manhattan and so on because they just can't afford. But there is public and affordable housing there, and there should be a, a component right within the Stoner project of affordability for folks, you know, that uh, uh, that don't have excess wealth and want to live and work just in the towers in, in big businesses. So, yes. Um, I am grateful that you mentioned the affordability of the um, the residents there as well as a good living wage for those who uh, are fortunate enough to get a job in it. Uh, Councilman Deutsch again with the Hartford City Council. Thanks for calling in. Yeah, uh, the last thing, if I could add, I hope Quickly. the citizens are vigilant. Yes, <laughs> uh, every citizen in Hartford should be quite vigilant and make sure that the city authorities are on their toes, especially when a tax break is given, which is also likely. Every person should make certain that when a tax advantage, a tax fix agreement is given, that all of, you, all of us as citizens stay on top of it to make sure they are following through with their part of the, the bargain. Well, thank you again for your uh, for your call. I wanted to go back to Ken Gosselin, business reporter uh, for the Hartford Current. Uh, Councilman Deutsch brought up a lot of different points. Let's talk about uh, the question of a tax break. Yes, well, that 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 is certainly something that often comes along with new developments. So that was is definitely a possibility on the horizon there. So um, he does raise a very good point. And as far as I know that this proposal just came out in the other week, at least, that the city had uh, chosen him, mm-hmm. and now it will go before uh, the council uh, for a vote. In terms of the like, you know, what are uh, politicians in town feeling about this particular proposal? What are you hearing? Well, they're, you know, they're, they're looking at it and they're reviewing it. And uh, Mr. Salvatore has told us that he is initiating conversations with them to try to answer any questions they may have. So he is uh, uh, being open to whatever you know concerns that they may have so that 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 line of discussion has already been opened a bit anything we're missing Ken on this story no I think it, it will be interesting to see it's a long-term thing we're talking about here it's not something that's going to happen overnight uh, it may begin you know uh, as soon as next May uh, talking about the uh, groundbreaking possibly uh, that may change depending on this lawsuit from Center Plan. If something you know surfaces with surfaces with that, uh, and it would take five, six years, maybe. I'm glad you brought that up. This lawsuit um, from Center Plan because uh, they're saying that um, the city doesn't own those vacant lots anymore. Center Plan does. How will that slow down uh, Randy Salvatore's plan if approved? Well, it could, depending on what is happening in court. Uh, a judge may make a ruling that saying that he cannot go forward. Uh, so there are many things that that could happen. Uh, so it's kind of hard to look into the crystal ball and see exactly what what might happen. Ken Gosselin, again, business reporter for the Hartford Current. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me in, Lucy. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalfathanchel. Now, do you depend on a virtual personal assistant like Amazon's Alexa? Coming up, we'll hear about whether it's a good idea to depend on her for health information. I think you know the answer to this. 
but it doesn't stop people from asking Alexa health-related questions. We're going to dive into that after the break, and you can join us too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucien Alpathanchel. In three weeks, Connecticut voters will cast their ballots in the state's primary, and there will be many, many candidates to choose from. On the next Where We Live, our Meet the Candidates series continues with Republican gubernatorial contender Steve Upsitnik. Now, what drove the Westport-based veteran and businessman to enter the race? We're going to find out. We also want to hear from you. You can join us uh, tomorrow on Where We Live. Now, you know it's a bad idea, but it is tempting to log on to the Internet to look up information on ailments and other health conditions. Now, Amazon's virtual assistant, Alexa, is making that a whole lot easier. But should you trust the information she gives you? Joining us now is health and science reporter for Quartz, Catherine Foley. She looked into this for a series that's exploring how artificial intelligence is impacting healthcare and medicine. Catherine, welcome to where we live. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So we know that uh, WebMD has been around for a long time. People go online, uh, they Google when they have uh, something bothering them. I understand there was a a Pew uh, Research uh, report that found, I believe, a third of people uh, in the U.S. are going to the Internet to self-diagnose. But how has Alexa changed this? Well, I think the thing that Alexa brings to the table is that it's a lot easier to use her. I mean, unlike, you know, when you come home from work at the end of the day, the last thing you might want to do is fire up your computer or tablet or smartphone again to look something up on the Internet. Instead, you can just use her name to uh, ask for a, a response. Now, you're only going to get one response at a time as opposed to several that you can sort of scroll through, but it is a lot easier. Um, In your reporting, you talk about there are two ways of uh, asking Alexa uh, and using her basic functions. So uh, walk us through that, and it includes how Alexa accesses something called skills? Yes, absolutely. So you can ask Alexa any kind of question, medical, weather, what time it is, whatever. Uh, We reached out to Amazon when we first started this story and asked where Alexa might be pulling some of her basic health answers. And a spokesperson for the company said that Alexa tends to pull from verified trusted sources, which include things like Answers.com, IMBD, Stats.com, and presumably WebMD for health-related questions. However, if you ask Alexa, how do I know if I have the flu, she might be pulling from WebMD, but you would not hear where she was getting that information in her response. The second thing you can do is install a skill on Alexa. And these are a little bit like smartphone apps, but for your uh, voice user interface. So you can search on the Amazon skill library online, which is something you would have to do with a a computer or tablet or your smartphone app. And you can look at, I think there are almost a thousand health and fitness related skills. Now, these skills can be broken down into four separate categories. There are those that are fitness trackers, Uh, so they can, you know, log your sit-ups for you. There are those that guide you through meditation or a workout. There are those that can, you know, count calories for you if you choose to give your Alexa that information. And there are those that uh, offer advice or, um, like, medical advice, such as a a diagnosis or treatment. And these skills, to use them, you have to install them on your personal device, and they should have disclaimers that make clear three things. 
Uh, they must not collect information on uh, users' individual health. They must not imply that they are life-saving um, through their name or description. And they must have a disclaimer that says that they are not intended to replace medical advice or opinion. Uh, some of them that we found went so far as to say that they uh, could not guarantee that their information was correct or should be taken as entertainment. I've never thought that Googling my symptoms was particularly funny, but they're, <laughs> they're entertaining, but there's that. Um, so to use these skills, you have to use a different invocation name. So you might say something like, Alexa, ask Dr. Dex to, you know, why I have the flu. And then she will pull up from that app um, whatever answer that, that, or that, that skill provides. Um, and you might be able to see where that information comes from when you are installing the skill, but there's no guarantee that the skill will there would then tell you where it's pulling its information from. So when you and your co-author tested a bunch of these apps, or what they call them skills, uh, some of them were offering medical advice. Yes. So we went through and we asked, well, we first went through in uh, February, my colleague Yo-Yo Joe and I, uh, and we identified 19 skills that some were from, from credible sources that um, promise to diagnose or offer treatment advice. So we went through and we asked Amazon, you know, about the criteria for uploading these skills because anyone can. So we were looking at skills that were designed by companies like WebMD or the Mayo Clinic or Boston Children's Hospital, all of which are reputable sources, and others which were developed by um, other telemedicine companies that uh, were looking to break into artificial intelligence and, and uh, home assistance. Uh, and then somewhere we couldn't find the sourcing. So we looked at these different skills that promised to, uh, that, that offered treatment advice, and we came up with a list of 14 questions that covered pretty common ailments from head to toe. And then we went through and we asked, um, I believe, 16 of them, because three of them had paid components um, that you were supposed to use, you know, with your, with your smartphone. So we went through and we asked these 14 questions to these 16 different um, Alexa skills, and uh, we, we, we found the results were pretty bad. Now, I should say that all of these skills did have a disclaimer saying that they were not intended to be medical advice, but as I said before, if you're looking at, if you're asking a skill a question, it, you know, and it's giving you an answer, seems like it would be advice, and it's, there's, it wouldn't always tell you that it is not intended to replace um, a professional health care provider. Now, you also spoke to uh, medical professionals about um, how Alexa is being used uh, at times uh, to uh, self-diagnose, and what are they telling you? Are they worried about um, how, uh, if people rely on Alexa, that um, they uh, may skip a very important visit to the doctor, and they may um, you know, miss a very a serious symptom that will lead to a big health problem? Yes, so we did reach out to two independent physicians um, to read through all of the, we took a transcription of everything that Alexa said when we asked her all of these various questions. And in a lot of cases, they had a couple of big concerns. The first is one that's similar to Googling your symptoms, which is, you know, sometimes you may get a, a general answer, but your specific health may mean that that general answer doesn't apply to you. So uh, I think there are cases where, um, a skill that offered advice on treating a headache suggested taking uh, ibuprofen or acetaminophen. But one of our um, physicians, Kate McKenzie, pointed out that um, 
you know, some people should not take ibuprofen or acetaminophen because of pre-existing conditions. Usually these people know who they are, but when you have these voice assistants in your home, there's no, you know, many people are using them at a given time and not necessarily the person who installed the skill. The other thing we noticed um, and that physicians picked up on is that, you know, when physicians are doing their job trying to figure out what is causing your illness, um, they like to ask open-ended questions so that they are not in any way guiding you to um, respond in a particular way that may end up misleading them. And these skills tend to have uh, a really hard time with open-ended questions. They really function on, um, they, they like to diagnose based on specific keywords. So if they hear flu, they'll start asking you questions related to bird flu or stomach flu or something like that. And that might have nothing to do with what is actually making you sick. So the fact that they can't really, uh, they, they aren't able to handle some of these open-ended questions is really problematic because they could lead you down just a totally wrong path. Catherine Foley is on the phone with us. She's health and science reporter at Quartz. Uh, we're looking at how uh, Americans are using uh, these virtual assistants like Amazon's Alexa uh, to uh, look up uh, health al- health ailments and sometimes using apps that are uh, providing medical advice. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, Catherine, when we talk about some of the problems with relying on uh, Alexa, the other question I wanted to ask you are what are some, you know, I guess some ideas of how this this uh, technology can be used in a more uh, productive way in terms of um, helping people schedule appointments, maybe helping the elderly or people with disabilities? That's a great question. And I should say that I think the idea of Googling your symptoms at home or, or trying to find out information about your health, taking ownership about your health outside of your healthcare provider's office is not necessarily a bad idea. It can save you and um, it can save you a lot of time and potentially money depending on your insurance plan um, if you figure out that you probably have a head cold that is just treated with you know a lot of fluids and rest as opposed to going into your doctor's office where they would tell you the same thing they can't give you a prescription for something that is caused by a virus Um, but as a whole there are a lot of great uses for personal assistance at home with regard to uh, uh, personal health these devices these smart speakers Um, are equipped with artificial intelligence, which if we give them enough information about us, they could potentially pick up on things that might be wrong before we notice something that is wrong. And, you know, if this is, uh, if that's the case, it would be great if your smart speaker at home notices that your, your language has changed recently and maybe you're not doing so well and you happen to have a history of of depression or other mental illness, and it could say, hey, do you want me to make an appointment for you? You don't sound right. Um, Of course, that's way far in the future when uh, these devices are are HIPAA compliant or the uh, cloud service, uh, um, the the cloud service equivalent, excuse me, um, which right now Amazon Web Services uh, do say that there is no HIPAA certification for uh, for their their products, um, but they have their own sort of equivalent things, but I don't think the skills are there yet. The other use for um, these at-home smart speakers is uh, they can be really useful for people with disabilities or uh, elderly populations who um, might 
find it easier to speak and ask their device a question, uh, especially if older people uh, fall and can't get up. It's really great if they can just say, Alexa, I've fallen. Please call uh, you know, my healthcare provider. Please call my uh, at-home nurse who, who, or, or nurse who does house calls or something like that. So it can be a really useful, it could be a really useful um, life-saving device in these circumstances. Uh, at the moment, I think some of these skills are, are in development from some of the preliminary reporting we were doing on this story, uh, but I don't believe they are uh, totally useful yet. I'm chuckling because I've been saying uh, Amazon's smart speaker's name, and some listeners are telling me that that's the wake word, and I'm triggering her. So <laughs> uh, my apologies uh, for doing that. But um, I should ask you, Catherine, before we let you go, when you did contact Amazon about some of these app skills uh, that are um, not having disclaimers, that are um, you know, possibly offering medical advice, what has been, um, how have they remedied that, if at all? Well, so we first reached out in February when we flagged some of these skills that were specifically uh, pro that specifically promised to either diagnose or help treat you. Um, and Amazon, when we first flagged some of these skills, Amazon has since there's one that has been removed. It was an Herbalife skill, which is a, a company that's a multi-level marketing scheme. Um, and so that skill has been removed. Um, and there's another skill that was made unsearchable, but is still available online. That one um, provides information about various types of cancer. And if you read some of the, uh, the comments, it, it seemed like some people were, uh, were actually taking it to heart just based on, on what they were saying. Um, the other time we flagged, as of, I believe we flagged in early July, we found 65 skills in the health and fitness category, which encompasses all of these, all of these health skills, not just diagnostic ones. Um, and Amazon routinely responded that they uh, routinely audit these skills, and um, that was about as much as we could get from them. Some of the health skills that we found that didn't have disclaimers were fairly benign. They were things that would help you, you know, brush your teeth by telling you when to move uh, in areas <laughs> in your mouth, um, but others gave out facts about suicide, which is a little more problematic. Catherine Foley, again, is health and science reporter at Quartz. Uh, thank you for uh, talking to us about your series, again, looking at how artificial intelligence is impacting healthcare and medicine. Uh, we appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Uh, thanks to technical producer Kion Wolf. Also, WMPR intern Isandra Ellen. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. Don't forget, tomorrow we're going to have Republican gubernatorial candidate Steve Upsitnik on. We want to hear your questions for him. The primary again only three weeks away. And we thank you for listening.